notes I had in my Bible. And Acts is my favorite book, and I always had wanted to preach through Acts, and so I had chosen Acts 12 as my text. And now, by providence, uh, we're finishing out Acts 11, and I'm very thankful for that. There's something, as I prepared this week, there was just a little beauty, a little kiss from the Lord in that to me. Um, Okay, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 11, and I want to note for you... um, I think preaching a sermon, you should, you should consider a few things. One, you should always hew close to the text. Two, I, I, I really believe a sermon should be evergreen. I think you ought to be able to listen to any sermon that's ever been preached and it should speak to you. But three, I think a sermon is to an audience. And a sermon should speak to an audience. And by the providence of God today, where we are in our text, it involves two men, two preachers, coming from afar to a thriving church. And to season the meat a little bit before we read our text, I want to give you a couple of things. Our text is going to involve Barnabas and, and Saul. He's not Paul quite yet. In Acts 4, we are first introduced to this man named Barnabas, and we read of him that he was a Levite. We read that he was from Cyprus, and Cyprus is going to come up in our text today, and that he had sold a field that belonged to him, and he took the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. We're introduced to Barnabas again in chapter 9, when he took Saul and brought him to the apostles in Jerusalem, and declared to them how on the road Saul had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how Damascus Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. Saul's stay in Jerusalem ended after Saul's disputations with the Hellenists, and it resulted in their trying to kill him. We read there that when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And Saul's been there for seven or eight years before we get to our text this morning. He's been away for seven or eight years. That's the length of time between the end of Acts 9 and the end of Acts 11. Meanwhile, Peter has preached the gospel to, the, to Cornelius' household, and the Holy Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles because even as the Judaizers came to realize in the moment, to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So now this three-strand cord is woven together. The call of Saul by Christ to be a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Two, the ministry of Barnabas, who is from Cyprus, who's well regarded in Jerusalem and who has been an advocate of Saul before the apostles. And three, the spirit of God falling on the Gentiles, a divine display of the worldwide trans-ethnic nature of the kingdom of God. And so as we read our text this morning, I want you to think about how those stories come together here for this moment. And as we read, I want you to note too that Antioch, where our story takes place, is a huge city. It's commonly regarded as the third most important city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. And it had a population of something around half a million people in the first century, several times larger than that of Jerusalem. When you see the word Hellenists in our text this morning, it's important to note that Luke does not use the term Hellenist in a uniform way. 
And so the two prior times that term has been used in the book of Acts, it has been used to mean specifically culturally Greek Jews. And our text this morning, as you read it, it's going to mean culturally Greek Gentiles. So just know that. And I also want you, as you read the text, to think about how this section of Acts reinforces its theme of being the greater book of Joshua. That is, the people of God expanding the kingdom of God through the power of God. Recall as an example in chapter 8, after the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, we read that Philip, now the evangelist, goes to Azotus. And we talked about how in the, the nation of Israel had never conquered the city of Azotus in Joshua. But that, the, that Luke, in writing Acts, is letting you know the gospel is conquering all of these heretofore unconquered lands because it's now being taken by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here in our text this morning, we'll see the region of Phoenicia mentioned. That's home to the infamous cities of Tyre and Sidon, also unconquered by ancient Israel. But whereas Israel was unable to drive out the Sidonites from Canaan land, the disciples of Jesus Christ are descending there and speaking the word of the Lord. So, holding that in mind, stand with me as a public testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we read Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And he came and saw the grace of, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. This morning we'll, raise, uh, we'll address two topics raised by our text. First, we'll discuss the concept of the hand of the Lord... And then we'll discuss Barnabas' exhortation to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We read here that the hand of the Lord was with them. As the gospel of Jesus Christ was going all over the world, as people of every tongue, tribe, and nation were coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, we read that the hand of the Lord was with these men of Cyprus and Cyrene that the hand of the Lord was with the church at Antioch 
as a great number of Gentiles were coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. This motif of the hand of the Lord is rich in Scripture. And generally speaking, you see it in four ways. First, you see it in protecting God's people. For instance, after the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, we read in Joshua that they gathered 12 stones from the river. They're going to set them up as a memorial at Gilgal. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let the children know that Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. And there also is a reminder that the Lord our God did that to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So the hand of the Lord is seen in Scripture as protecting God's people. The hand of the Lord is also seen in Scripture as empowering God's man. For instance, the hand of the Lord is with Elijah when he ran before Ahab. The hand of the Lord is with Elisha when he prophesied before the king of Israel. The hand of the Lord was was with the great prophet Ezekiel when the Spirit takes him to that valley of dry bones and a vision. And you see one of the most beautiful displays of a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you could ever see. A beautiful picture of salvation in the Old Testament. You also see the hand of the Lord in Scripture in disciplining his people. You know, after Joshua died, we read the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They had abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And we read they provoked the Lord to anger. They had abandoned the Lord. We read that they had served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord, as you can imagine, was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. So the hand of the Lord in Scripture, you see, protecting God's people, empowering God's man, disciplining or chastening his people, and also, you see it, in punishing God's enemies. In the days of the prophet Samuel, the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant, and they took it to Ashdod. And there they placed the Ark in a temple they had to the false god Dagon. Priests got up the next morning and they see the false god face down in the temple as though it was bowing down to the living God. They raise it back up. They come back the next day. This time, the false god is down again. This time, though, decapitated. His hands cut off and the priests were so afraid they they wouldn't go back in. And we read that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the enemies of Israel, against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod 
and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. Luke uses the phrase, the hand of the Lord, three times in his, in his corpus, and it runs the spectrum of those. The first time you see Luke use the phrase, the hand of the Lord, it's in regard to the birth of John the Baptist, where you read, on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God and fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them upon their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. He's on God's man. So we see that the hand of the Lord was upon the forerunner of Christ, the voice who would cry in the wilderness, this preacher who would baptize our Savior. The second time you see Luke use the phrase, the hand of the Lord, it's right here when the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So in this instance, the hand of God is with his people in the way God's hand was with Moses and Israel at the Red Sea and with Joshua and Israel at the Jordan. Here God's hand is with the men of Cyprus and Cyrene. The, the hand of God is with the church at Antioch. The hand of God is with God's people as they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to all men, declaring that God's kingdom has no border, that God's kingdom has no ethnicity, and that God's kingdom is global and that it is unending. For all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. And therefore, we, like these folks from Antioch, are to do what Jesus said to do. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The kingdom of God will continue expanding apace and God's hand will be with those who preach it and will be against those who would be a hindrance to it. Which brings us to the third time Luke uses the phrase, the hand of the Lord. And it's in Acts 13, where Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They actually go first to Cyprus. And Paul is preaching to a Roman proconsul there, but there's a false prophet in his ear. It's actually a Jewish false prophet named Elimus who opposed Paul and Barnabas. And in the first miracle performed at the hand of the apostle Paul, we read, but Elimus the magician opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, 
and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So the hand of the Lord, listen to me, the hand of the Lord is not neutral. He's not neutral with you, and he's not neutral with this church. The hand of the Lord will be with you in preaching God's kingdom or against you if you seek to thwart it. And in Antioch, the hand of the Lord was with that church. And that led to a great number who believed and turned to the Lord. For the hand of the Lord, listen, the hand of the Lord brings salvation and deliverance. The hand of the Lord has been with us too at Sylvania. We've seen souls saved, baptisms this morning. We've seen people flock to this fellowship. And to continue to be with and not against the hand of the Lord, we must, just like the church at Antioch, one, proclaim the word of God, trusting in the power of the word of Christ to save the lost, to edify the redeemed, and to give wisdom to the church. We need to be bold in proclaiming the word of God in this pulpit, in our Sunday school classes, on Wednesday nights, in your small groups, and listen to me, in your home, in your work. Are you proclaiming the word of God by word and deed in your home, and at your office? You better be. Two, we're to be generous like the church at Antioch sending food and money to Jerusalem, we must sacrificially give not only money but time to ensure our people are cared for. And by the way, how frightening must it have been with Agabus coming into town to declare a famine? You see Agabus twice in Acts, once here, and the second time uh, when you see Agabus, he's prophesying about the future arrest of the apostle Paul, and he kind of makes a show of it. He binds himself with a belt and tells Paul that this is how you're going to be bound to Jerusalem. I, I bet there was something about the way Agabus delivered a prophecy where everybody knew they had to stop and listen. So one, we're to proclaim the word of God. Two, be generous. Three, we're to not mollycoddle sin in our lives. Don't play with it. Don't play with it. And we're not to ignore sin in this body either. In other words, we are to strive for purity in the word and unity in a spirit. So I'll say again, the hand of the Lord is not neutral, that God will accomplish all his will and will move to grow his kingdom and fulfill his purposes. And so one, we want to be sure that we're with the hand of the Lord and not against it. And two, like Barnabas exhorted the church at Antioch, we want to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose. In this moment where Barnabas goes to Antioch, there are all kinds of opportunities for jealousy to creep in. Barnabas is well thought of in Jerusalem. He is presented to us in the exact opposite way of Ananias and Sapphira, embodying the selfless giving of the early church. Where We read that Barnabas sold a field and he took the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. In fact, the description that he's given here of full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, it's exactly how Stephen is described earlier in Acts, of full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And we can note here the literary genius of Luke through the power of the Holy Spirit and coupling the name of Stephen in verse 19 and the associated 
diaspora of the church from Jerusalem and how the gospel is spread with Barnabas coming down also full of the Holy Spirit and faith to fertilize the seed that had been planted when the church scattered after Stephen's death. There's an opportunity for jealousy too between Jerusalem and Antioch as the geographic center of Christianity is shifting. In fact, the geographic center of Christianity is always shifting, isn't it? The gospel is taking hold in this huge Gentile city such that these early Jesus followers are now being referred to there as Christians. They're not just some other sect of the Jews. We'll see in chapter 13 that it's the church at Antioch, not Jerusalem, that sends out the first missionaries, commissioning Paul and Barnabas to go on their first missionary journey. And at the conclusion of this chapter, we see that it's the church at Antioch that responds to Agabus' prophecy about famine by coming to the aid of the church in Jerusalem. That, in other words, think about sending Saul and Barnabas back. Saul's hands, the hands that had sought to bind men and women to bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, those hands are now bringing food and money and famine relief those very people. And seemingly immune to these potential threats of jealousy, Barnabas sees a plentiful harvest. He sees the grace of God, we read. And that he was glad. And he took joy in the ministerial success of his brothers and the expansion of the kingdom because he knew that salvation of all these converts is the work of God's grace alone. And instead of standing there to preside, staying there to preside over the growth of this church himself, he remembers the calling of Saul, that the Lord had a special purpose for this man. He was going to be called among the Gentiles. And Barnabas gets up and goes to Tarsus, gets them, brings them all the way back to Antioch. Been seven or eight years. But where I want to close the sermon is in taking some time and pondering this phrase. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast, with steadfast purpose. As my time in this troika, our preaching rotation of me and Chad and Chris draws to a close, I want to leave you with the same exhortation. Sylvania Church, we need to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And I'll highlight but two ways we can do that. First, we must preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel must include the following. One, that Jesus Christ is risen. Two, that Jesus Christ is king. And three, that Jesus Christ forgives sins by free grace alone. Jesus Christ is risen. Paul would write to his spiritual child, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. The fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is central to the preaching of the apostles. Consider Peter's five sermons in Acts that we've read so far. We've read five sermons by Peter in Acts through the book thus far some of which are only two or three sentences that you've gotten a snippet of. It's in every one of them. Listen, Acts 2 at Pentecost, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In Peter's second sermon at the temple, after he, after he heals the paralyzed man through the, through the power of God, the lame beggar, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, listen now, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Then after they're arrested and they're before the Sanhedrin, he says again, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. After Peter's second arrest, we read that Peter and the apostles answered the Sanhedrin saying, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And then at Cornelius' house, Peter preached, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Or consider Paul's first sermon in Acts, which appears in Acts 13. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus Christ. And at Mars Hill, even to just Gentile, a Gentile audience, the great apostle to the Gentiles declares, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's seven sermons from Acts where the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is central And I could give you more. And in this pulpit, if we want to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose, we need to proclaim the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to to preach that Jesus Christ is king. One of the great early creeds of the church is found in the last chapter of 1 Timothy, where Paul writes that Jesus Christ is he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, and Lord of Lords. And that creed ends with, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This proclamation of Jesus as king is seen throughout the sermons and acts as well. At Pentecost, Peter declared that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. That's, that's the greater throne of David. Upon their arrest in Acts 5, the apostles declared that God exalted Jesus at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And to Cornelius, a Roman soldier, one who had sworn fealty to Caesar, Peter preached that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus said that all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and we need to boldly proclaim that Jesus Christ is both Lord and King. So we need to proclaim in this pulpit and in our classes and our homes and small groups and at work that Jesus Christ is risen, that Jesus Christ is King, 
And we need to preach that in Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness of sins by free grace alone. We used to have a questionnaire for prospective elders at this church. And when I came on a few years ago, uh, one of the questions was very simply, what, what is the gospel? And, and the temptation is to, to write two pages or one sentence. And so I just wrote 1 Timothy 1.15. In fact, Chad said it, part of the verse, when he prayed. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul wrote, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. Paul preached at Antioch and Pisidia, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, Peter wins the debate about whether salvation is by faith alone by declaring, we believe that we, the Jews, will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. For salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of Christ alone. And we need to proclaim that boldly and with steadfast purpose in the years to come in this church. For he bore our sins on that tree. We praise God that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? It sounds like a lot of people in this church have come to the point where the Holy Spirit got them, right? If you're a child of God, at some point the Holy Spirit got you and you knew that you needed to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And Jesus Christ is faithful in that, isn't he? He's absolutely faithful. And we need to call on all men, as Paul would say, to turn from the vanity of this world to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. So if any a church would remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, not only through preaching the gospel, but also by tending the sheep. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples and had a fish breakfast with them. Ollie, how would you like to have a fish breakfast? Well, Jesus had a fish breakfast. That's what he wanted after he was resurrected. And toward the end of the Gospel of John, we read that when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said this to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So, Sylvania, we can remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose by tending to and feeding the sheep. And we are to tend the sheep by one, protecting the flock, and two, encouraging the church to do good works to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church which he obtained by his own blood. 
Paul would warn those men to watch out for fierce wolves who would draw away disciples after themselves with teachings foreign to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the best way to protect the flock is to preach the gospel, to rightly divide the word of God such that our ears are ruined to false doctrine and bad preaching. That's why we so fiercely guard doctrine in our church, is to protect the flock. It's also our job as the church to treat each other as those who were bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. When you look around this room, is that what you see? It better be what you see. You better be looking at a bunch of people who Jesus Christ bled and died for. And if we do that, we'll be tripping over ourselves to do good works to glorify our Lord. Paul wrote to Titus that the church is to be careful to devote themselves to good works. James would tell his audience to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And Paul would write to the church at Ephesus that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So as Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church at Antioch to take famine relief to the church at Jerusalem, They are living out all of those one another passages that Paul would later so eloquently write about in his letters. For Christ has called us, called us all, to tend the sheep. There's a common misconception that the Gospels treat sheep as stupid. That's not the point. When Jesus talks about the sheep, he's talking about the vulnerable and the valuable. So the hand of the Lord will be with us as we, one, preach God's word faithfully, and two, are generous in caring for God's people, and we can remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is risen, that he is king, that in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness of sins by free grace alone, and by tending the sheep of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thank you for redeeming us. We were in bondage to sin and death, and Christ paid the perfect ransom, and we have been delivered the hand of the Lord has delivered his people. And we praise you that, that, is, that the kingdom of God is going forth. And we ask that your hand would guide us and that we would never, ever come against it. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.